We will continue this morning the message from last week entitled The Mature Christian. So this is part two, if you will. Um, Our passage for this week is longer uh, than typical. If you've uh, been uh, focused over the last uh, seven months, you know that I've been breaking this up into very small uh, bits and pieces. But uh, this morning, because of the context in which the author was writing and the context of these messages, I felt that it would be best to just go ahead and uh, preach a longer passage this morning. Um, and so uh, we are going to be looking at, and we began this last week, but we're going to be looking at probably one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament uh, today. And it's difficult because uh, when we read Scripture, we tend to read Scripture in an isolated format. And what I mean by that is that we read a passage of Scripture, and then we, and then but we, we don't read it within the context of the rest of Scripture. And so it's easy for us, if we're not well aware of the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Bible, uh, for us to take these proofed text pieces of Scripture out of context and believe that the Bible is possibly contradicting itself in different places. And so, uh, but I can assure you that the Bible does not contradict itself and that the Bible is true 100%, completely inerrant, and that it's our duty to, as we get in there, led by the Holy Spirit, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, it's our job, if you will, uh, to, uh, to conform to Scripture, not for the Scripture to be conformed to us. And so one of the things that I want, just sort of a key, and I've mentioned this before, but just a key uh, practice of interpreting texts as you're reading through, is that when we try to understand a difficult text, uh, we don't try to understand a difficult text in isolation, but we try to understand and interpret a difficult text uh, based upon other texts that are easier and more clearly uh, understood. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So, And you'll understand here shortly. Uh, I'm going to have you remain seated this morning because this is a longer passage. Uh, but this is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. And so, here's what the author of Hebrews writes. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work 
and the love that you have shown for him, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Would you join me in prayer? Father, may we understand these texts, may we understand them and apply them into our lives. Father, may they not be simply just words on a page, Father, but they be words of life that will inform, convict, and edify us. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be near and be working to enlighten and to illuminate these words, Father, and that we would understand them clearly based upon the whole of Scripture, not based upon tradition, not based upon our own circumstances, our own experiences, but that we would understand them based upon the truth of your word and that we would take the Bible as a whole. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you are hearing those words, if you are listening to those words, uh, you understand that those are uh, difficult words to hear and in fact scary words to hear. Um, This line in here where the author writes, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. That's a scary uh, concept. Uh, it's, it, has this, it brings to mind this idea that, it, that if you fall away once having tasted these blessings, that there is no saving you. There is no reconciliation for that individual. Now, what I want to start off with, though, this morning is, is an introduction in a little bit of a different way. I want to kind of set the groundwork because today's passage and today's message is not about the preservation or the perseverance of the saints. That's not what today's passage is about. Um, and we often call it this doctrine, um, uh, perseverance of the saints, especially in Reformed circles. And so for you that are unfamiliar with that phrase, uh, that phrase has also been uh, coined and crassly, I might add, uh, those who are once saved, always saved, or even more crassly, the frozen chosen. Uh, now, I don't like either one of those terms. I don't like either one of those terms, even though there is validity to those terms and that, those phrases. I don't like those phrases uh, because the Bible calls us to persevere. And so I like using language that Scripture uses. Rather, t- so today's passage and message is not about perseverance of the saints, that those believers who have been saved will persevere to the end. Okay, they will persevere to the end. Those who have been saved will continue to be saved. Okay, that is a truth of Scripture. That is not what we're going to be preaching about. However, it's important for us to address it in order for us to understand what today's message is about. Today's passage is actually a warning to those Christians who refuse to mature. And I want you to, I use those words carefully. This is a refusal of maturing. It's not an inability or a lack of opportunity. It is, they, this is a warning passage to believers who are refusing to mature, to grow up in Christ. And if you were here last week, you, we talked about what that looks like to be, to grow up in Christ and not to have your feet 
firmly planted in the shallow end of the ocean or to be uh, living on milk when we should be eating solid food. Individuals who are willingly refusing to mature run the risk of falling away from Christ. Or in other words, they may lose their salvation. Now that sounds like I'm contradicting myself. So I want to explain. Because this raises some really deep concerns. Especially for those of us who were raised on the bread and butter of traditional Southern Baptist theology, or what I like to say, the meat and beans of Reformed theology, we have been instructed, rightly so, that genuine Christians cannot lose their salvation. We've been instructed that way. And that is absolutely correct. If that is what you have been taught, that genuine Christians cannot lose their salvation, you have been taught correctly. You have been taught correctly. And I want to use some verses. I, I don't want you to just trust my, uh, my, the words that I'm saying. I, wanna, I want to use some texts in Scripture that confirm this, all right, to give you some reassurance. John says in the fifth chapter, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death, death to life. There is no if there. There is no if. If you hear my word and believe him who sent me, he has eternal life. Romans 8, 38-39. This is a, a, a golden passage for this doctrine. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, anything else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is speaking to believers here. He is speaking to individuals who are washed in the blood of Christ, who have repented, and who have believed in the name of Jesus. There is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of Christ. We cannot lose what God has given us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse six, verse 6 through 8. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is sustaining us that we would remain guiltless. Because remember that anybody who stands condemned in the presence of God at judgment time is going, those are the guilty. Those are the guilty. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christ begins, God begins his work in us through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. 
And, not, and he's not going to leave us there on our own, but he's going to continue that work throughout until glory. He's going to sustain us through all of that. And then, if so these are all positive verses. These are to give us encouragement. But now here's a negative verse to kind of put a period, a full stop on this. What about those individuals who we see who do not behave like Christians, who were once in the church, um, possibly baptized, possibly led ministries, but then renounced the faith either by their own words or by their actions? What about them? And John speaks to that because that's a reality. They went out of, from us, talking about these individuals who have basically apostatized, if you will, if you want to use that phrase. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's this idea that individuals, that just because we have warm bodies in the seats does not mean that everyone is of us. Because if they were of us, they would have continued with us. Now, Paul is not talking about, or John is not talking about here, like church membership. That, you know, somebody maybe moves their membership. Well, obviously, they move their membership, so they're not of us. That's not what he's talking about. He is speaking to faith in Christ. They are not of us as believers, because if they were, they would have continued the path in which they were on. Because genuine believers will not leave the path. Now, that doesn't mean, any, and John speaks to this too, is that doesn't mean that there isn't straying. That doesn't mean that we don't sometimes go wayward. That doesn't mean that there aren't times when we are going through seasons of doubt and trouble and even sinful behavior. That happens. But on the whole, on the whole, we are continuing in a tra trajectory towards Christ and greater holiness. That's the trajectory that we're on. Now, I could have chosen more passages. There are tons of passages. And even in Romans 9, and you can go, I mean, go throughout the text, you can go through the Old Testament, and there are clues to this demonstrating, uh, even in relation to Israel, that those who are of genuine Israel, those who are really God's people who have been circumcised not just of the flesh, but of the heart, that those are the individuals that are true believers. And we're studying that right now on Wednesdays in Romans. So I could have chosen many, many other passages. And in fact, the only serious passage in Scripture that could even possibly contradict this truth is today's passage. It's today's passage. But if we understand what the author is doing in this passage, then we'll understand that he's not contradicting at all. He's not contradicting. In fact, that's why I included the last four verses of this section to demonstrate that the author is not contradicting himself and he's not contradicting what other authors in the New Testament have written. But he is providing a warning to us. Now, there are times, and we're almost done with this introduction, but I want to mention one more thing. There are times when our experiences 
with those inside and outside the church cause us to believe that it's possible to lose our salvation. And what I mean by that is that we will see somebody, and many of us could probably name somebody like this, somebody who has been in the church many, many years. We trusted them, may have even been baptized by them. They may have led us to Christ. Active participants in the church. And then, what sometimes we consider to be all of a sudden, they renounce the faith. And they say, I no longer believe. Well, two things to make, two things to make comments here. Two points I want to make in my comments. Number one, it's never all of a sudden. It's never all of a sudden. If you were to inspect those lives, either visibly, in secret, or at least in the heart, that decision to renounce is never sudden. It's always this kind of gradual progression away from the things of Christ. And second of all, it's not that they are renouncing what they once believed, it's that they never believed it. They're just being honest about what they don't believe anymore. So what do we say to a seasoned pastor after two decades in the ministry who leaves his wife for another woman or a man, which we've seen here recently, and denounces Orthodox Christianity? And my response in lament is the same response that John gives. That they were never of us, because if they had been, they would have continued. I am not speaking of pastors who have to either be removed from a position or who willingly leave a position in the church due to personal sin or a difficult season in life. There are pastors who can be disqualified from the pastorate, but that does not mean that they are, they've lost their salvation. It just means that they are disqualified from the pastorate and that they no longer need to be serving as a pastor. They need to be they need to just follow Christ. So we look to Hebrews 6 as a warning to Christians, especially those who refuse to grow up, that apostasy is deadly and irreversible. Irreversible. It's a warning to unbelievers in the church that proximity to Christians and the kindness of Christ is not the same as saving faith. And it's a warning that genuine believers will heed and unbelievers will reject. And that's the key here. This is a warning that genuine believers will heed this. But unbelievers will not. And it's a similar warning that we've already approached in chapter 2, but now we're going to flesh out. So if I could say this, that God keeps what He saves, but He cannot keep that which he hasn't. And so if I could explain this just one little way by using an analogy, the concept of tenure in an educational system. If you don't know what that is, in, in a tenured position, either in college or even in, uh, in middle school or high school or something like that, teachers have the opportunity of getting tenure. And what that basically means is based upon either a length of stay in a particular school system, this is typically for like elementary, middle school, and high school teachers, once they've been there for so long, 
they are now tenured, which makes it nearly impossible to remove them from the position. You can move them positions, but you can't remove them from the institution. They'd pretty much have to kill someone. Likewise, professors in colleges, it's not based upon length of time, but also production can be tenured, and you pretty much have to kill somebody or commit a felony in order to be removed from that position. Now, I, I, I tie this in here because a lot of people think of their salvation and this concept of perseverance of the saints as the same as tenuring. It's not. It's not the same. It's a completely different concept. Because individuals, the the idea is that now I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. No. That's the definition of an unbeliever. That's the definition of an unbeliever. Because a lot of times we look at those tenured individuals, and once they get tenure, now they can just be lazy and they don't have to work. Well, that's not true either. The majority of these individuals who are tenured, once they are tenured, they continue on the path that they have been uh, blessed with. Well, it's the same as Christians. Those who are genuine believers, once they have been saved, they continue on this path. So let's go ahead and talk about these passages in here, looking at what the author is trying to do. First is verses 1 through 3, pressing on to higher ground. It says here, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead works and faith toward God, and of the instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So, leading off from, this, uh, from last week, the author is exhorting his listeners, which is primarily Jewish Christians, to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, the author is not telling them to forget those doctrines or to ignore those doctrines. He's telling them to grow up. So elementary mathematics, 1 plus 1, 2 plus 2, those are important, crucial, foundational skills to know. But by the time you're in high school, you should have moved on from that. We should not have to uh, rehearse basic addition and subtraction. And if we do, then there's a problem there. This is similar to what what the author is saying here. He's not saying reject those ideas. He's saying, no, those are foundational. Those are important truths to remember. But now it's time to move on. I will remind you occasionally, but let's spend our time on that solid food rather than just milk. Let's play in the deep end, not in the shallow end. So here are three different examples of which the author is talking about. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So that's one couplet. The second couplet is instruction about washing and the laying on of hands. And the third, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And that triad, those three things, they go together, okay? And so the author is saying we need to move on from these elementary principles like these. And all of them are important. So the first one, repentance and faith. We should repent of our works that lead to death, which demonstrates our faith in God. And so that phrase there that the ESV uses 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, the NIV actually says it a little bit better, is that we should repent from works that lead to death. We should repent from sin, and then we should aim on faith toward God. Repentance and faith are foundational to the gospel. Without these, there is no saving faith. The second one, the washings and the laying on of hand. Washings here likely mean some sort of ritualistic thing, especially Jewish in nature. So the Jewish Christians would have recognized this. And the laying on of hands, likewise, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, were considered to be blessings. They were considered to be, especially in the New Testament, signs of healing or work, uh, through works of healing. The washings also could be related to baptism. But these were important factors in the faith. They, involved, they, were, they were important in the New Testament as well. And finally, the resurrection of the dead and judgment are hallmarks of Christendom and our hope for the future. So these truths do not detract from our faith, but provide proper context from which we are able to grow in our faith. So we must have them. We can't just leave them behind and forget them, but we're supposed to use those as a propulsion to go forward and grow up. To grow up. They should be the baseline. It seems, though, that the author's audience could not, or more likely, would not grow past these basic doctrines. They just wouldn't. And so it would be a mistake here to think that the audience was so heavenly-minded that they wanted to just rest in those doctrines, okay? So, so some might say, well, they're not refusing to grow up. They're just so captivated by these doctrines that they don't want to move on from anything else. That's not the picture being painted here. That's not the picture that's being painted. The depiction here is, in this passage is that these individuals are so immature that they are relying on these basic truths to make them an example of Christian maturity. So if I could say it this way, kind of in a paraphrase, I've repented and believed, and that's good enough for me. And we know that, right? Oh, I've, been, I, I've repented and believed. I, that's good enough for me. I don't need all that other stuff. Or number two, I've been baptized, and, and, and I throw up prayer hands on Facebook. Don't bother me with those other Christian duties like loving my neighbor, Right? Or the third one, sure, I believe in the resurrection and the eternal judgment, but don't make me explain why it's important. You see the difference there. We're not talking about a mature believer who can flesh that out and show how it applies to the greater Christian life. We're talking about somebody who is simply trying to do the very basics. Do the very basics and then not be bothered so that it won't interrupt the important things in life like UK basketball, which isn't being played right now anyway. So, so this is likely, in, so what I'm saying here, it's an exaggeration to make my point, but it is very possible, since, since many of these were Jewish Christians, that many of them weren't growing up and instead they were falling back to these works-based righteous acts, if you will, in order to basically prove or to earn the love of God. And so we see in verse 3 that God is involved in our maturation by permitting us to leave these elementary basics. So he says here uh, in this passage, he said, and, we will, and this we will do 
if God permits. So God is working in and through us, but there is still something that we are doing as well. It is a joint effort. God has given us the ability through the Holy Spirit to become enlightened, but we must be willing to expend the blood, sweat, and tears in order for us to become enlightened, okay? So if you are a believer, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, which gives you the ability to understand the text, but you have to read the text. You have to read the text in order to garner anything from it. So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not a free pass to apathy, immaturity, and sinful living. The doctrine is based upon the kindness and mercy of God that compels genuine believers to seek to know God more fully. That's what the perseverance of the saints does for us. So this first point is demonstrating the types of principles which the author is encouraging us to now grow from, okay? Not to just leave behind, but to grow from. But now let's look and see what happens when we don't and rather reject those foundational principles. And this is from verse 4 through 8. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. There is a danger to immaturity. There is a danger when we refuse to grow up. And we need to heed these warning signs. And what I just read here, similar to chapter 2, they are warning signs like the warning signs at the Grand Canyon warning you of extreme heat and a very far drop-off. Okay, They are meant to protect you from the danger that is to come. This, these passages here, these passages are warnings to prevent genuine believers from falling away. They're meant to prevent them from falling away. Now, some, all right, some use what some have used as an example of how a genuine believer can lose their salvation is actually a dire warning that will ensure that genuine believers won't fall away. And so I want to admit one thing here. There are some some really good theologians in the theological community, and two of them would be like Wayne Grudem or Al Mohler, um, who, who believe that these passages, these verses here, are actually warnings to individuals who think they are genuine believers, but are not. Okay, Whereas others believe, no, this is a genuine, genuine warning to believers that genuine believers will heed. You see the difference here? I believe that this is a genuine warning to genuine believers. And I'll explain why. It's this. The author begins this passage by describing the audience member he has in mind. And there's four points. He says, those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. And by the way, when we use the word tasted in our language, it means that we're just kind of like maybe just tasting the soup or or tasting the food. In Scripture, when when you see the word tasted, it means fully. It means fully, generally speaking. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit... All right, and those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. 
So we cannot say this definitely, but this surely sounds like the audience is a group of individuals who have been, who are believers, but then have rejected those things and have fallen into apostasy. That's what it sounds like. But at the very least, we can say this is a description of a person who walks, talks, thinks, and even believes that they are a true believer. They've had these Christian experiences, yet they haven't grown past the fundamentals of the faith. And again, not due to their ability or lack of ability or lack of opportunity, but it's just a lack of desire. I really worry about individuals who call themselves Christians who do not demonstrate any any desire to grow in Christ. That concerns me. That concerns me. I have a I struggle being able to say or to announce or to affirm that person's stance with Christ. If they don't show any desire to study, if they show no desire to pray, if they show no desire to be with the people of God, I have a problem affirming their stance that they are with Christ. Because genuine believers do not want to just stay in one spot. They want to continue on to God. The warning is that for those who have tasted the riches of Christ, but then reject Christ, can never be restored to faith. And the reason is, is because it's as if they are crucifying Christ again. That's what the author's explanation is here. They can't be restored. Now, let's just step back for a second. Imagine that you are reading this for the first time in the day that Hebrews was written. And you read this letter, and you're a Jewish Christian. And you read this warning. That basically, if you don't grow up, you run the risk of rejecting what you say you believe. And if you do, and you renounce your faith, There is no redemption ahead for you. Would that not scare you to death? Would that not, if you were genuinely in love with Jesus, would that, man, I'm staying a mile away from that and I'm just going to run to Christ. That sounds like a genuine believer, right? Or does this sound like a genuine believer? Well, the author warns us of that, but surely I can play around. Surely I can. I don't need to worry about all these kind of advanced theological things, right? I, I don't need to worry about the doctrines of grace. You know, I've, I've repented, I've believed, and I've, bat- but I've been baptized, but I, I think I'm just going to continue doing these little things, but then I'm going to kind of chase my dreams, if you're right. Well, I'm going I'm to sow my oats. I'm going I'm to do all these sorts of things that I want to do. And this Jesus thing, you know, it's fine, but I, I don't need to grow from that. I'm just going to stay right there. Does that sound like a genuine believer? No. Genuine believers are going to heed that warning. Just like when we were at the Grand Canyon, we heeded the warning. We brought lots of water. We stayed a long ways away from the edge. And I saw all those people dangling their feet over that cliff, and I just said, they ain't believers. Anyway. To prove how difficult of a passage this is to explain and to receive, the author uses an analogy of the field. Let me read this to you. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those who 
uh, whose sake it is, it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You'll be blessed as you are in the church, as you are in Christ, as you are growing in Christ. But if you renounce and reject all these principles, what happens? Condemnation. It's a very clear picture. For believers, this is a warning. This is a warning that we dare not neglect our salvation. We dare not neglect God's Word, and we dare not neglect the work of the Holy Spirit, and we must press on. If we refuse, then we may be proving John's thesis when he says that we were never one of them. And this is also an encouragement for us to make certain our salvation, is it not? It's important for us to make certain our salvation, that we are not simply playing games and gleaning common grace because there is judgment to come and being a fan of Jesus is not enough. We must be slaves to Jesus, servants of Jesus. So this is really scary. This is a dire warning. But then he provides this bit of hope at the end. Let's read what the author says here. Though we speak in this way, talking about this warning, yet in your case, referring to these genuine believers, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he provides this warning, but then he says, but to you all who are reading this, I'm, I, I am assured, I am quite confident of your place in Christ. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. What have those believers that are reading this, what have they done? They've continued on. They are growing in Christ. So it's important for the author to provide a warning, but then it's important for him to also acknowledge the fact that these individuals are heeding that warning by growing up. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. You see their earnestness. There's an earnestness. There's an, it's, 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 uh, it is uh, something that is intentional. So we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish or lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the author is confident that his audience is comprised mostly of the individuals who are going to heed the warnings presented in chapter 5 through this first part of chapter 6. Their faith and commitment to Christ is revealed through their work and through their love. If I could say it this way, their faith is bearing fruit. It's obvious to them. And he knows that God will not overlook this fruit that is born from their salvation. And so that is, that is an encouragement to us, that these are warnings, and that if we would simply seek to follow Christ and to grow in Christ and to study the things of, of God and to know God, aim to know God more, that these warnings are warnings that we need to remember and keep in the back of our mind, but they don't paralyze us 
We just continue pressing on for the sake of Jesus. It is likely in this statement, imitators of those whose faith and patience inherit the promises, that the author is referring to heroes of the faith from the Old Testament, and especially those that we're going to read much later on in Hebrews chapter 11. And so he tells us here, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators, or to be imitators, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's encouraging them to look and to imitate those Christians, those faithful individuals who have come before them. So at the same time, while he's speaking directly to these heroes of the faith, I think that we would be rightly uh, justified in assuming that we could also look to individuals in our own sphere right now who are producing faith or uh, fruit for the cause of Christ. And this is one of the most important facets of committing yourself to the corporate body of believers. Far too often, when we consider church attendance and Christian activities, we are so focused on how those activities serve our own needs that we miss the equally important impacts on others. If I could suggest this, if you believe that your church attendance and worship and Bible study is primarily, if not completely about you and your relationship with Christ, then you won't be near as concerned about lack of participation if you feel justified that you're solid with Jesus. You won't worry about attendance. You won't worry about participation. You won't be worried about loving and serving and caring for other members in the church if those things are primarily about you. But what if church attendance, church worship, the corporate gathering, what if the corporate study of God's Word, corporate prayer, what if corporate loving of the neighbor is equally or even more about the person sitting next to you as it is about your own growth in Christ? If worship and corporate service is purely individual and self-efficacious, then you might assume that personal attendance and participation is not important. But while you might have your spiritual ducks in a row, others, especially those who are immature and new in Christ, likely don't. And you are not loving them by forsaking worship. And to deprive them of mature believers will ensure that they will struggle in their growth. We're going to address this in chapter 10. But when the author in Hebrews exhorts us to not forsake the corporate gathering of worship, it's not, we often say that we often point it towards us. Well, if we forsake worship, then we are not going to grow in Christ. We, our relationship with Jesus is going to uh, be harmed. We, 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 I, I, I. And there is truth to that, but that's not what he's referring to. He's referring how you damage the corporate body of Christ by your lack of participation. When you forsake the church and gathering with the church, I think it's ironic I'm speaking to people who chose to gather with the church this morning. But you get the picture. 
All right? When we forsake that, we are actually causing injury to the body of Christ as a whole because it's not just about you. Christ gave himself fully for us, yet often we are poor imitators of his humble servant self-sacrificial spirit. So let me encourage you. So here's the, here's the end. Here I'm concluding. But let me encourage you in this way as we do conclude. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper and have a response time. Let me encourage you over the next few days and weeks ahead to reevaluate your walk with Christ. Now you may be saying, I've been walking with Christ my entire life then hopefully you've been reevaluating as you go your walk with Christ. We should do that. That's an important thing as believers to just reevaluate, to, to check ourselves. We should be asking questions like this. Do I know God as well as I should by now? And more importantly, does God know me? Do I have sin in my life that prevents me from growing in maturity? Am I doing something about it? Do I have distractions in my life? People, activities, or lesser priorities that are preventing me from growing up and maturing in Christ? Am I imitating Christ faithfully that others might see the glory of Jesus? Is what you are doing in private being revealed in public. Or I could spin this around, is what you do in public who you really are? Or are you different in private? Do I love God's Word? Do I read it, meditate it on it, and study it? Do I love to communicate with God through prayer? Do I pray with regularity and conviction? Notice in all of these, I don't use the word enough. Am I praying enough? Am I reading or studying enough? Folks, there is no enough, okay? We just keep plodding along. If there's an enough, then that's where we get stagnant and apathetic. We just stop. Oh, I've done that enough. There is no enough. Do I love my church enough, <laughs> there I say it, to make sure that I may, I'm using it in a different context though. Do I love my church enough to make sure that I make their sanctification a priority in my life to where I am present and active in the body? Or is church more about my needs? And the last one, am I willing to put Christ first regardless of the circumstance? Regardless of my position and circumstance. Or in other words... In the words of the author of the Hebrews, am I willing and able to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and to go on to maturity? Is that us? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to heed the warnings of the author, the pastor that wrote this beautiful sermon in Hebrews? Or do we just want to continue dabbling in the shallow end? I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I'm also going to bless our communion time. And so here's how we're going to do that this morning. As I pray and as I bless those elements and bless our offering, when I conclude, feel free to come ahead up 
and gather your elements and go back to your seats. And then once you go back to your seat, then we're all going to take communion together this morning. All right? And then we will, um, we will close and um, move on from this day. But let's not forget these exhortations that the author makes to us. These warnings are dire. They are dire warnings. But they are meant to keep genuine believers from straying and to following Christ. It's a rhetorical tool, if you will, by the author.